This is a 980 CKNW podcast. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Recently in British Columbia, the BC Women's Health Foundation and Pacific Blue Cross spearheaded, in her words, women's experience with the healthcare system in BC. To hear directly from women about their experiences with the healthcare system in British Columbia. The report is one of the first of its kind in Canada and was produced following a provincially representative survey, including focus groups and consultations to hear from women across the province in both urban hubs and rural communities. Joining me on the line to talk about this is Dr. Lori Brado. She's the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute and professor of gynecology at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Brado. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen. It's, it's a pleasure. Uh, what was your role in the survey or the report, in her words? So I, together with my team at the Women's Health Research Institute, provided initial consultation and input into the questions that women were eventually asked on the survey uh, because our research institute has a fair bit of experience with uh, methodology and survey design. We assisted in making sure that the questions were not biased, not leading, um, and sufficiently open-ended. And then once the survey results were in, we performed an independent reanalysis of all of the findings um, and then worked with the teams of BC Women's Health Foundation to extract the main meanings and the interpretations of the findings. And there were a number of key findings from the report. One of the most shocking, perhaps, perhaps not, to those of us who work in healthcare with women, one third of women surveyed, and you surveyed a thousand women, I understand, do not feel their needs mm-hmm. are being met or treated effectively by the current healthcare system. For Indigenous women, it was nearly three quarters of respondents. Why do you think this is? So, you know, I've I've been asked a few times whether these findings surprise me. And uh, as a clinician, especially as a clinician in the domain of sexual health and and genital pain, it certainly mirrors the stories that I hear very often among the women that I see, which is uh, it took me three or five or even seven years to get a diagnosis of my condition and this is after seeing um, countless number of different healthcare providers. And I think what happens oftentimes is if there's something that is not visible with an exam, something that can't be measured or something that doesn't show up in a blood test, there seems to be this tendency to chalk up um, uh, an individual's symptoms as being all in their head. And we know that this tendency, this unconscious bias, Uh, disproportionately affects women more so than it affects men. So, yes, it it mirrors many of the stories we hear where women are told, um, this must be in your head, this must be due to life stress, or perhaps this is just a regular phase of your life, whether it's menopause or some other significant event in your life. Go home, rest, wait it out, and all will be well. And, And unfortunately, Um, What our findings suggest is that for a lot of women, there truly is an underlying health need there, and it leaves them feeling dismissed. And just over half of the women surveyed felt that a physician had diminished or overlooked their symptoms. One of the stories that was chronicled in the newspaper report that I read, um, the woman had a classic bullseye symptom of Lyme disease and was told by her physician, who later apologized, which is also um, significant, that we didn't have Lyme disease in British Columbia. And the woman, from my understanding, went away 
um, believing that because we put this faith in physicians, physicians or women have a tendency to put this faith in physicians and then they think, well, this must be in my head. But she had a, a clear sign of Lyme disease. So are, are you seeing that happening as well? Yeah, and you know, um, this this very unfortunate situation that, that featured Lyme disease specifically, um, it, it isn't specific to Lyme disease. We see this generalized uh, across so many other issues. Um, my own personal view is that this is probably not only a symptom of an unconscious bias, again, this tendency to treat genders differently, but also, I think, is, a, is um, a symptom of really our lack of research and, and understanding of women's health issues. So we know, I mean, when we look at the research, that Lyme disease disproportionately affects women more so than men. Um, I think for a long time it was believed to be um, specific to very particular areas of the United States, Denver in particular, but when we, the research actually tells us a very different story. It, it can be contracted here in Canada, in British Columbia. Um, and so sometimes what happens is there's a failure of research findings to translate into health care. Um, and, uh, and women's health research itself is underfunded. Women's health issues are understudied. And therefore, um, in our medical training, unfortunately, there's far less that is known about women's health issues, which also contributes to this picture that we're seeing of women being more likely to be dismissed. Exactly. And I think not only do we see it in Lyme disease, but we see it in in the field in which I work, which is vaginal health and bladder health, Mm -hmm. sexual health, the same as you, Um, you know, that they have gone to their doctors and their doctors have said, um, can you put up with it? And, you know, women put up with a lot. So a little bit of leakage here and there, they think, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, I can put up with it, which has led women to believe that leaking urine is normal when leaking urine is not normal. Leaking urine is not normal. Exactly. And so I, exactly. I'm glad you brought up knowledge translation because I think that's lacking. And mm-hmm. I also think education and awareness for physicians and women who are the consumers of healthcare, along with men, um, need to know and need to understand and need to advocate on them uh, for themselves. Um, because mm-hmm. because they so many people be- mm-hmm. can become sick. It'll affect their work, productivity, our our healthcare system, socioeconomics. Three in ten women reported challenges accessing the health care they needed last year. What does that mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, un- unfortunately, we know that across the province, about one in five women don't have a primary care doctor. And it is, it, it is a big, big, big problem. It is a problem that our health care system, our health authorities, the government are well aware of. Um, But what it means then is, in particular for women living in geographically remote communities, is their basic health care needs, their primary health care needs are not being met. So there are other data which tell us that women who don't have a primary care doctor are half as likely to get uh, a mammogram, and they're also half as likely to get their regular pap smears. And And of course, we know that uh, mammograms are linked to breast, breast cancer detection. Pap smears are di- uh, linked to, pa- to cervical cancer detection. And so if women are not getting those basic healthcare needs met, we see this direct translation into uh, the likelihood of cervical and breast cancer not being detected at an earlier stage. So 
it's it's a huge problem. I, 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 what I don't want is the findings of this report to result in us pointing the fingers squarely at doctors because I, I think that, um, you know, that this is a bigger issue of, of uh, the fact that we don't have enough primary care doctors. And I know that there's a lot of effort being placed onto other models that can more effectively deliver care, like group care models, et cetera. Um, but there is also an unconscious bias that in our medical schools um, and in our clinician training programs, we need to start to integrate into our training. And that is that we can teach people and say, we know that we are susceptible to this unconscious gender bias. Let's just accept that we're inherently uh, predisposed to that and let's name it and stop it when we detect it. And I think that's a vital change that has to happen in our healthcare training. I totally agree. And in terms of um, reporting access to healthcare that they needed, you mentioned that many women don't have a primary care physician. Um, mm-hmm. is, is some of that onus on women to seek? It's my understanding that some women and some people, not just women, have not even tried mm-hmm. to get a GP, a general practitioner, a family doctor. Yeah. Is that part of the mm-hmm. problem as well? Yeah, and um, you know it, it puzzles me because I it's it's a right we're entitled to is uh, is to have a primary care doctor and ideally someone who can follow you over the course of of a number of years, but I think that um, a proportion of the public has just become so frustrated, so disenfranchised at the fact that how difficult it is to find a doctor, and so they try and find other solutions, whether it's uh, walk-in clinics or Uh, Dr. Google online trying Mm -hmm. to find out health information online and you and I both know the dangers of doing that simply because the public you know I think all of us in general are not aware of what's a credible source on the internet versus what isn't Um, and so I think your point Maureen about we need to we need to own this we need to have agency and say I deserve this I need this this is about preventative health measures this is about ensuring that I'm the healthiest that I can possibly be and we know undisputed evidence that when women are healthy, all of society benefits. And that's regardless of whether that woman is a mother or not. There's a direct link between the health of women and the health of a community and a society. Absolutely. I, you're up against the clock here. I, I could talk on and on uh, with you about this, but what I'd like <laughs> so to could do... I. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to have you back and, and you know, we talk further and, and dive a little bit deeper into this, you know, looking at what, mm-hmm. what is the definition of the healthcare system? Who's responsible? We have so much to unpack here, and so I would like to yeah. invite you back 10 times, please, at least, <laughs> uh, to continue <laughs> sure. to discuss this, because I think this is really important, and I really appreciate your time, Dr. Brado. I know you've been on the media circuit this week, uh, so thank Thanks for being um, on my little part of the world here. Well, thank you so much, Maureen, and to all your listeners. This is an opportunity for us to express our voice, um, and, uh, and, and we need to demand change. And if you're feeling dismissed, ask for a second opinion. Great advice. Thank you so much. Dr. Lori Broder, where can people access this report? So it's available online at www.inherwords.ca. Thank you so much, Dr. Lori Brado, my guest. And this is the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm Maureen McGrath. Thank you so much for being here with me tonight talking turkey. Hope you're all enjoying your time with your family. Joining me on the line is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He is the medical director at the Pacific Coast Recovery Care, a center all around attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Thank you for joining me. 
Oh, thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. So, and, and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. You as well. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to talk about attention deficit disorder. And this particular segment, we're going to be talking about uh, children and uh, being diagnosed and some of the things that uh, happen in today's world, especially as it relates to parenting and schools and teachers. And then, and then you've been so gracious to say you'll, you'll join me again in a, about a half an hour to talk, uh, to join me on my back to the bedroom segment. And we're going to talk about uh, sex and uh, ADHD and monogamy and polyamory and all those sorts of things. But right now we're sticking to the kids. And um, so in today's world, I notice quite a bit that kids aren't held as accountable to things like homework, like they have been in past generations. Um, you know, it's been said we're raising a bunch of snowflake children. Uh, we're going easy on them. We're not allowing our children to fail. We're expecting them to be perfect, perfect. There's so many, um, you know, games that they can play, video games like well, Minecraft and Fortnite, and they can seem to hyper-focus on that, but they can't seem to get their homework done. And so their grades start to slip in school, especially as the years carry on and, and things get a little bit more difficult and they, they need to tap into that executive function. So what are your thoughts on you know kids who are having difficulty in school, the teachers are walking on eggshells with the parents, the parents are you know blaming the teachers or the school or the sun or the moon, it doesn't matter. Uh, the kids are allowed to sit and play video games for hours on end, but they don't have to do their homework. And so I think this is a common story that I hear about from people and, you know, patients and in my clinical practice. What are you seeing and what are your thoughts on that? Great questions, Maureen, and, and, and a lot there that you've covered. So just to take a step back, so what we believe right now is that 5 to 8%, so if you say 5 to 8%, around, if you round it to 10%, that's 1 in 10 or 5%, 1 in 20, is sort of the prevalence of um, ADHD in children and adolescents. So, so, so when we're saying that, it's not uncommon. So that basically means that in a class of 20 children, there'll be at least one that has it, and in a larger class, maybe one to two that has it. So that's the other part to think of is that it's fairly common. It's not rare. And, and, and you've, you've covered a lot in your introduction, but generally when we talk about ADHD, it's the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So the hyperactivity part often gets a lot of attention, especially in elementary school and, and later in high school, but mostly in elementary school, these kids are hyperactive, they're disruptive, they're chatty, um, often they're driving the teacher crazy, um, they won't sit still, they're the class clown. And that sometimes gets attention earlier than the inattentive type that I'm going to speak about next. So in, in terms of the, the, um, the hyperactivity part, because that child is disruptive, and it tends to be more boys than girls, but it, they, they, although girls can be similarly disruptive, but because the boys tend to be disruptive, the teacher will say, ultimately will get frustrated because the, the, the student, the young student has to be taken into the hallway because they're disrupting the class. At some point, the teacher, the vice principal, the school counselor will say to the parents, get this kid checked out, right? Um, and they often do get some attention um, from a pediatrician, a family physician, a psychologist, um, a counselor, and, and they often do get some treatment. Um, what you're talking about, though, which is the, around the homework, is, yes, yeah, some of the homework and other school um, activity challenges, maybe because they're hyperactive, but it's often the inattention part of uh, the ADHD. And what this is really referring to is that these kids have, have difficulty focusing. They have difficulty staying attentive. Um, they have difficulty 
um, concentrating on any one one activity, and they're easily distracted. So, Maureen, it's kind of like, you know, you and I have met many times in, in person. So it would be like if you and I are speaking, you're making eye contact, but you're not really listening to Gritty. You're thinking about the milk in your fridge, um, a friend that you have to text, um, the next Netflix episode that you're going to watch. And that's generally what happens with these kids is, although they're supposed to be sitting down to do work, their mind is actually somewhere else. And what that then leads to is procrastination. Because it's such a huge cognitive effort for them to focus on any one thing, it's just exhausting. So rather than doing that, they'll do anything else. And, and you, 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 you touched on something else that's really important is this hyper-focus. So a lot of times parents will come to us or disbelievers of ADHD will say, well, my kid doesn't have ADHD. They can play, as you said, Fortnite or some video game, and they can play for 14 hours straight. In fact, that actually isn't, doesn't exclude ADHD. That's often a symptom of ADHD. And Maureen, you said it quite well. That's called hyper-focusing. And what they're doing is they're focusing on something that they find pleasurable at the expense of everything else. So just, just because someone is able to sit and play a video game, a child is able to play a video game, doesn't mean they don't have ADHD. A better screening question would be, when, did the, when was the last time they actually sat through an entire movie? And I'm not talking about, you know, a 30-minute sitcom, but, you know, a movie. Or when was the last time they actually read a book from cover to cover? Um, and, and it can be something pleasurable, you know, like a Harry Potter type thing that they're interested in. But when was the last time they sat and did that? Um, but but what, you're, what you're picking up on is that these children are struggling because they can't maintain enough attention to get, um, to get their schoolwork done. And when you speak about our current generation of parents, you know, the, the, the joke we used to make was we'd say they're, they're helicopter parents, meaning that they're sort of hovering, right? They're, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're watching everything. Well, in, if, in case any of your listeners are helicopter parents, tell them that's not, that's not um, trendy enough now. The, the, the new over-involved <laughs> parents are called, the, the, they're called the snowplow parents. So it's not enough to hover now. They have to clear the way and, and the kids right behind them. So now, the, the, the trendy thing to be if you're an overly involved and overly aggressive parent is you're the snowplow parent. And what that means is that it's easy to say, you know, my child just has special needs um, or they're not focused, but you know what? I'm going to get them not one, but three math tutors. Um, I'm going to, man, I'm editing their essay helping them with their editing and their spelling. Am I really editing or helping them with their spelling? Or am, or am I rewriting the dissertation? Right. Seven, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and you're right. I think it's, you know, society has gone to a point now where we don't let them fail. You know, I, I remember being, I grew up up north in Kitaman, and I remember going to sports day, and this may surprise you, Maureen, because you know how physically fit I am, but I didn't do that well in sports. So I, I didn't even, I, so I would come home from sports day without even a single ribbon, and this is quite traumatic, and, I should probably be talking to my counselor about that, but but the, but the truth of it now is that we don't we don't we don't permit that kind of competition for all the right reasons. I think that it does affect children's self-esteem and self-confidence. But have we gone too far and said, you know what, it's okay if you don't achieve at all? And and I think that's not what educators would say is that there needs to be a balance between having children that are engaged, um, but then also giving them some responsibility to put in effort. Right. Are, are kids with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity or disorder, or ADD, attention deficit disorder, are they less mature than their peers? Um, good question. I, I don't know if we can comment on their maturity level. I think what we're, that, that would be a, a, a tricky um, conclusion to make. I think what, what I would say, though, is that in terms of the inattention part is that they're easily distracted. And the hyperactivity is that it's not just physical 
you know, restlessness, but they often have emotional dysregulation. So they often have temper tantrums or cry easily or maybe even laugh hysterically because they can't control their emotions. Right. Um, they also they, they often have impulsive behaviors. So if that's somehow interpreted as that they're not as mature, I, I guess you could say in a way they're not as emotionally mature. Um, but, the, but they do have um, this inability to control themselves. So the H isn't just physical. Well, the hyperactivity isn't just bouncing off the walls, which is what we normally think of, but it could also be this emotional dysregulation and this impulsivity. And, and you know, if you think about the class clown, if you think back to your elementary um, class, maybe the class clown was the ADHD child in the class. And in the beginning, the class clown is actually a lot of fun and popular. But after, you know, one week or two weeks, that class clown gets a bit tiring. And then, they, and then it actually flips. Instead of being popular, they often get bullied. So then this negatively impacts the child's self-esteem and self-confidence. Right. Um, that's an excellent uh, summary of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and the behaviors. I'm going to ask you to hang on, if you don't mind, um, because we're up against the clock here. Um, because I want to provide, I'm sure people are out there listening, thinking, this is my child. What can I do? What is going to help uh, my child uh, to succeed in school? And how can I be a better parent to a child who may have this particular medical condition? So if you wouldn't mind hanging on the line, um, I'd like to come back and ask you those questions. Absolutely fine. Thank you so much, Dr. Gurdeep Parhar, Pacific Coast Recovery Care. Uh, the website is pacificadhd.com. It's in Burnaby, British Columbia. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. It's Maureen McGrath hosting this program. On the line with me is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He is the medical director at Pacific Coast Recovery Care. And we are talking attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children. The website is pacificadhd.com. Thanks so much for staying with me, Dr. Parhar. If we could start out um, with educating the listeners about what are some of the symptoms of ADHD in children. Yeah, Maureen, uh, and so it's easiest to divide them up by thinking about those attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And we often think about the hyperactivity part first, um, and because that's sort of the most obvious. So these are children, and you think about children, nieces and nephews and your own children or neighbors' children. These are children that are often running and climbing. They can't see, stay seated. So if they're at the dinner table or they're in the classroom, they're just bouncing around. They keep talking excessively, um, kind of like I am right now. They're always on the go. They're driven. They're driven. Um, they're squirmy and they fidget, right? They can't sit still. Um, they can't play and work quietly. This is not the child that's going to be doing a jigsaw puzzle for two hours. Um, they can't wait their turn. So if there's a lineup of children to do some activity, they'd rather butt in line or, or if, they're, if they have to tell their stories in some sort of sequence, they want to be the first one. They often interrupt others. They blurt out answers even before somebody's finished asking the question. So it's kind of like their life is a constant Jeopardy game, right? They're just constantly speaking all the time. Um, so that's the hyperactivity component. Um, now, when you think about the inattention uh, with these children, they have difficulty paying attention in class. They avoid doing homework um, because in our practice, we see mostly adults. Um, we, when, when we ask them to reflect back to childhood and, and high school, this may surprise some, some listeners. They'll say, did you ever do homework in high school? And often the, home, uh, the answer is rarely, if ever. Did you ever study for a test? Rarely or ever. Now, for the majority of the population, we think, how could you get through high school and never do homework and never study? Um, but that, that's what these um, children and adolescents have done. They don't follow through on assignments, so they'll often hand in incomplete assignments. 
um, especially the young girls more than the young boys, um, they, they are daydreamers. So they'll sit in the class and they'll be uh, staring out into space or they'll be watching the back of the teacher's head um, or that leaf falling in the playground through the class window. Um, and so they may not be always disruptive, as I was saying earlier, but they're daydreaming. Their mind is somewhere else. They have difficulty organizing tasks. They lose things. This is the child that will lose their textbook, their backpack, or shows up without their pencil case. Um, so that's the inattentive component. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the inattentive component often gets missed because, as I was saying earlier, the disruptive type, the, in- the hyperactivity type, often gets attention because the teachers and others are being bothered by it. And what we often miss are um, the quieter students that aren't as chatty and disruptive, but they have the inattentive component. And they and both remind have your listeners when we talk about They both have the inattentive component? Do both yeah, types so, have the so inattentive component? Yes. Yeah, so when we talk about ADHD, the, the easiest way to think of it is that there's three types. There's inattentive, there's hyperactive, or there's a combination of both. Okay. So you could have you could have any three of those forms. Children tend to be more hyperactive and inattentive, and as it goes into adulthood, it becomes more inattentive. Uh, little girls tend to be a bit more the inattentive and the daydreaming, and the boys tend to be a bit more disruptive and the hyperactive. Um, that's a sort of tendency based on gender um, um, sort of presentations, but really boys and girls can be either or, so they can be mixed up. And so what can parents do to support their children from a medical perspective, for example, medication, and or from a behavioral perspective? So the first and most important thing is identifying the symptoms and having them assessed. I can't tell you because we only see adults. Um, even yesterday when I was, we were in our clinic, you know, there are people coming in 30 and 40 and 50 years old, and when we confirm the diagnosis, and it's, wasn't, they, they weren't born with it at 35 or 40 this was something they've had their whole childhood. So it just didn't get picked up and their lives went in disarray because of it. So the very first thing is if you're suspicious that your child or your niece or nephew has it, ask them to see their family physician, a counselor, a pediatrician to get it assessed. Once it's assessed and the diagnosis is confirmed, there's some structural things that you can do that are not medications, like arranging where the child sits in the class, some counseling, um, tutoring techniques, academic support, accommodation at school. So there's a lot of things that can be done. And then uh, one option that does work and dramatically works well is medication. And I appreciate that you know, putting children on medication is not something that parents or teachers or doctors and nurses take easily or lightly. But sometimes that is what's needed for the severe cases. And I can tell you, having seen it in my practice, that the, the improvement is quite dramatic. Um, and so definitely get it assessed and then, and then decide with the caregiver, the professional, healthcare professional on, what types of treatment are the best. But the, the biggest challenge that we have in society right now is that these children don't get diagnosed and they don't get assessed. And they don't get the proper treatment, that, which can affect their self-esteem. If they're always getting yelled at by the teacher and yelled at by their parents or parents are frustrated that they're not turning in their homework or not doing their homework or not doing a good job on it, I would imagine that they would feel badly about themselves and they would feel unsuccessful, especially compared to their peers who are doing those things. Absolutely. I can tell you, you know, people often say to my partner, myself, who run the ADHD centers, you know, you've got so much other stuff going on. How, why did you take this on? And we've been doing it for about three years. And I always say I, we get quite angry that these patients have been told their whole lives that they're lazy, they're stupid, they're dumb, they're not going to amount to anything, they're never going to do well in a career. And that makes us angry. But what makes us more angry is that the patients have believed it. So they come in and I'll say, so why did you choose this career path? But why did you not finish high school? Why did you not pursue 
college or a technical program. The oldest wasn't good at school. And I said, well, it's kind of funny, you know, would you ever tell a diabetic patient, it's not a disease, you just have high sugars, right? Like, it just, you just wouldn't do that. So this is, this is a, a disease, and, it, and, and if it can be identified earlier, um, it's something can be done. You know, I often say to people who have children, we, we have three, and I say to them that parenting is really about managing regret and guilt. And, you know, if you, if, you, if, you are, if you are a parent and you think your child may have this, what you don't want to do is have, that, have your child get to 18 or 19 or 24 years old and then regret both them and you that it wasn't identified earlier because, as you said, Maureen, it affects their self-esteem and self-confidence, but it might totally change the path of their life. Exactly. And as you mentioned, it can affect their career path and decisions that they make. Maybe they might get into self-medication. And also, they can have problems with sex. And you're so gracious that you're going to stay on the line (laughs) and focus on that with me um, after we hear the news. Um, So Dr. Gurdip Parhar, great information. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for staying on. Uh, The medical director at Pacific Coast Recovery Care, uh, the website Pacific ADHD. Dot com And he's in partnership there with Dr. Anita Parhar, who's the educational director. And I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. So we're in the final strokes of the Sunday Night Health Show. We're talking a lot about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And if you think that that is strictly limited to children or that children outgrow it, think again. Uh, Dr. Gurdip Parhar joins me on the line. He is the medical director at the Pacific Coast Recovery Care in Burnaby, British Columbia. The website is pacificadhd.com. And I asked him to talk about uh, a sensitive subject here at the Back to the Bedroom segment, uh, specifically around attention deficit hyperactivity and monogamy. So are people who have been diagnosed, adults who have been diagnosed with ADHD or not, have a harder time with monogamy, and do they cheat more? I certainly see this in my clinical practice, and that's why I was interested to talk to Dr. Parhar. So thanks so much for staying on the line, and I'm going to let you go after this. <laughs> so That's great. No, ha- ha- happy to be talking about this important topic, Marie. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, so do people with attention deficit hyperactivity, and I don't want to give excuses for infidelity, but do they cheat more? Do they have a harder time? Do they get bored with the same person? Um, they certainly struggle in relationships. And so just to remind um, your listeners, our listeners, is that, first of all, the prevalence is about 1 in 20 for adults, so people having ADHD in the general population. So that means that um, it's about 5%. So it means in the general population, we believe that about 1 in 20 people have ADHD. And as we said in the earlier segment, um, with children, it, and it tends to be a bit more hyperactive and inattentive. But as, as, uh, as children go into adolescence and into adulthood, the physical hyperactivity tends to go down. Like they're not bouncing off the walls and they're not as fidgety, although some adults can be. But the inattention persists. So that's why some people often call this ADD, although that's not a true um, diagnosis under our, our um, diagnostic criteria of the DSM-5, the, the psychiatric sort of uh, reference book. Um, so although it, we call it ADD, um, and that's not a real diagnosis, the reason they do that is that the age has dropped off in adulthood because adults tend to be less hyperactive. There's two parts around that that affect um, intimate relationships and, and relationships of any kind is that if the, if the inattention is still there, so we're looking at ADHD or ADD, and, and these adult patients now have difficulty with attention, you can imagine that that has a 
huge impact on relationships. In fact, couples come in and, and the, the patient who's being assessed um, will describe their symptoms and the partner will say, what you're not understanding, Dr. Parhar, is when I'm talking to him or when I'm talking to her, we're not on the same page. We're not connecting, right? Like there'll be, you know, visual contact. I'll even ask them to parrot back what I'm saying to see if he or she is listening. And they'll say it back, but we're not, we're still not connecting. So when you think about the struggles in a relationship, a lot of it, and when you've talked about this before on, on, on your show, is the importance of communication. Um, and so, uh, so the inattention already is straining a, a relationship. The other part, and you spoke about infidelity or the challenges with monogamy, is as much as we said that the H tends to go away, so it becomes ADD, the H doesn't disappear. The H actually then manifests itself as um, impulsive or risk-taking behavior. So adults with ADHD um, actually are more likely to be um, risk-takers. You know, And before we get to the sexual component, they're, they're likely to have road rage. Um, they're likely to have emotional outbursts. They're likely to um, drive fast. They're weekend warriors, online gambling, online shopping, um, just doing things that are a bit erratic and impulsive. And when you can, now you bring it to the realm of relationships, um, they'll often engage themselves in impulsive relationships. So whether it's online dating, um, um, you know, um, uh, night affairs and so forth. I was up in Prince George not long ago giving a talk on ADHD and, and I talked about risky um, sexual behaviors of patients with ADHD. And a younger member of the audience said, oh, you're talking about short relationships. And I thought, oh, I think that's what in, in my day we used to call um, uh, the, 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 night, the one night affair. So apparently, if you're, if, you're, um, in, uh, if you're using the trendy language, it calls short relationships now. But the point is that, it, that this is, it's an impulsive, um, impulsive thing that happens. The typical story, and the patients will say it themselves, is they'll be at an airport um, lounge, a bar lounge, um, and they'll be sitting at the bar, and they catch somebody's eye, or they, they send over a drink or something, the flirt um, with a complete stranger. And if that stranger then reciprocates that attention with a smile or says, come over and chat, that's it. That ends up in being um, that in infidelity experience or that one-night affair or a short relationship. And it's what's interesting is that the patient doing that recognizes that it's wrong, recognizes that it's jeopardizing their long-term relationship and a loving relationship that they're in. But, and, and even as they're engaging in, in this impulsive relationship, they're recognizing it's wrong, but they can't control themselves. And, and that's the sad part about this. So when we see um, patients in our practice that haven't been diagnosed or haven't been treated, it's because these types of, um, these types of activities have happened repeatedly, and it's because of the lack of impulse control. And um, I'm, I remember not too long ago, we had a patient who, um, with a patient who came in, um, and at the end of the social history and everything else, I thought we'd understood everything. And he, he just to paint a bit of a background, he, uh, I'm going to anonymize this a bit. So let's say he belonged to something quite structured, a uh, uh, structured occupation, like the military. So very sort of formal, organized. And he says, you didn't ask me about porn. And I said, well, I, sorry, did I, did I, what did I miss about porn? And he says, well, I, I can't stop myself from um, I'm watching and engaging in and, and getting gratification from porn. So they can't stop. Because I know I, I don't feel good about it. Um, and my partner isn't crazy about it. And it affects our relationship. But it's something I can't control. And so it's interesting how ADHD, the impulsive component, has, has various manifestations in relationships. So the inattention, that not connecting with your partner, impulsive behaviors, and maybe not even impulsive physical behaviors in real life, 
but impulsive online or um, the, the pornographic type activities that, you know, and, and again, it's, it's not a judgment call um, um, participating in um, pornography, but more that more that it, it's negatively impacting the relationship. That's what the person doesn't otherwise want to do if they had thought things out. Right. And it's not necessarily if your husband is watching porn or your wife is watching porn an excessive amount. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have ADHD. No, it's not that at all. It's, the, it's their inability to control it, right? It's their inability to, um, you know, um, to manage that um, is, is the issue. Again, it's the impulse control and, and not being able to um, um, basically control the urges to do it. And, and that's the part that needs help. But it's not everybody who obsessively watches porn that, you know, I get a lot of people presenting in my clinical practice and they, they say, I think I'm addicted to porn. I think I have a sex addiction. And, and I will say, are you able to stop? You know, how much is it? You know, so I'll, I'll do a bit of an assessment, uh, how frequent and, you know, they might say two or three times a week. Their perception is that that's, that that's too much or that's a lot. Um, but it's, is it, uh, it's not uh, an exclusive symptom that they should be assessed if they're, unless they can't control it. Is that something that I would send them off to see you? Yeah, control it. Yeah, control it. And and um, I, I guess the other part of it, with any anything, you know, you're allowed to be sad, but when when the sadness gets to a point of causing dysfunction, is when we call it major depressive disorder or depression, clinical depression that needs assessment. Same thing here. Um, it, it's it's one that what's when the participating in the pornography is actually interfering with your you know your social functioning, your family functioning, your personal functioning. That's when it that's when it requires some sort of intervention or treatment. If it isn't, it, you're right. It, it it could be totally uh, something that's acceptable. My my comment was more that when they're not when you're not able to control it in an impulsive way, right. um, that may suggest that there may be uh, a component of um, hyperactivity that that's there. Um, and, and, and that probably does need some um, sort of attention and focus. You've just given all men out there permission to view pornography. Anyway, a lot of them feel guilty about that, but that is something that occurs. And, you know, a lot of wives, what I see in my clinical practice, don't appreciate it, don't like it, will be in denial about it, um, but it certainly does happen, and especially in the sexless marriage, which is something I um, happen to be an expert in. <laughs> I focus a lot, hyper-focus on sexless marriage, perhaps. Um, so there's help for these people. Yeah, and, and um, just just to be clear, I think when we think about or talk about, and I'm going a little bit off topic of the ADHD, but pornography itself has all sorts of um, challenges as, uh, from a social society perspective. Are that the, the people involved in it? Are they doing it willingly? Are they coerced? Are they are they um, challenged financially, and therefore they're participating? And there's a lot of other elements of pornography that I think is society that needs attention anyway. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely, um, it it does occur. Um, you know that was that was my point. And sometimes it doesn't impact their relationship. But um, again, we've gone off a little bit on off track. <laughs> Um, but there is help for people who, adults who have ADHD, adult ADHD, and especially if it's their, if it's impacting their relationship, then it's not something to give up on hope. And even if somebody has had an extramarital affair, they can be helped. Yeah. And the other part that often ties together with it, and again, trying not to make excuses, but when my, when we said that adults with ADHD often have impulsive behaviors, the other impulsive behavior is um, substance use, right? So it'll be binge drinking and perhaps drugs. And, and often that is then tied together with or associated with that infidelity 
for that or that sexual activity that was wouldn't have otherwise happened if the person was sort of alert, alert and, and um, cognizant of what they're doing. So that often ties together with it as well, is, is just watching, our, is there some substance use issue that's also surfacing with the lack of impulse control that happens with ADHD? Absolutely. Well, I could talk on and on to you about this. Um, and I'll definitely have you back because I think there's so many issues uh, that can impact relationships and impact the quality of life for people. So I really appreciate all of your help and your time and your knowledge. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me tonight on this Thanksgiving. I'm extremely thankful to you. Oh, my pleasure, Maureen. Happy to, happy to talk about these important topics. Oh, well, thank you so much. And again, that is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He is medical director at the Pacific Coast Recovery Care in Burnaby, British Columbia. And the website is pacificadhd.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Parhar. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. And happy Thanksgiving to you. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.